God, we thank you for this time in human history that we get to gather as your church under the authority of your word. God, I pray as we approach another ingredient that we see in the early church of a gospel movement. God, as we look at this idea of community, I I know that for many of us, it fills our heart with fear. Maybe it reminds us of a, a time in our past in which we got burned living in community. God, this idea of community might be intimidating to some. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word and by your spirit that you would create afresh a picture of community that is shaped by the gospel today. God, I pray that you would help us to see our need of one another and doing life together. And I pray this for the glory of Jesus and in his name, amen. Well, some of the best things in life are costly. Just to give you an example of that, something that is actually very expensive to do is child raising. CNN came out with a report in 2015 and and shared how much it costs to raise a child from birth all the way to age 17. And it kind of startled me at first, and I thought about how many diapers we buy every single week. But the number of how much it costs to raise a child is over $213,000 to raise a child zero to 17. It's almost a quarter of a billion dollars. And yet the cost is not just financial. For those of you who are parents, you know that there are other uh, demands and, and areas of our lives that are impacted by raising a child. There's the emotional burden of caring for children. There's even the social uh, uh, dynamic of our lives that are impacted by raising kids. I know personally for me, I have to sacrifice how many times I go to Taco Bell because it's not nutritious for the girls. You know, we all make sacrifices in child raising and some are different than others. And yet many of us, and hopefully all of us would say that they're absolutely worth it. That no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, child raising is worth it. Parenting is one of the most rewarding callings in life, and yet I think it's healthy just to identify the hardship that it demands. You could actually say that multiplication is costly and yet so worth it. I think that's helpful to keep in mind as we think about this idea of multiplication in the life of our church. As we look at this sermon series of what it means to multiply and have the gospel be multiplied deep in our lives and wide throughout the world, it's both rewarding and also costly. In fact, the early church in Acts experienced this very thing. We just got done looking at last week at the end of verse 41, in which the response to Peter loving Jesus out loud in his sermon was that over 3,000 people were saved and added to the church. Now, on one hand, that's really exciting. Like, that's amazing. That's an incredible experience. And yet, on the other hand, that's pretty costly if you think about it. Like, imagine if 3,000 people just showed up to College Park Fishers next week. Like, like that would be amazing. Heidi would probably have a stroke in children's ministry. But at the same time, like, we would have to sacrifice some of the things about our culture, some of the things that we love about our culture because of gospel multiplication. And so as we look at this fourth ingredient of a gospel movement, this idea of a gospel-shaped community, I don't wanna over-promise and under-deliver what community actually is. See, with as many joys and rewarding experiences that comes with 
community, just like parenting, there's a cost to it. There's a level of sacrifice, almost a level of, of inconvenience when you're living out biblical community. And what we've seen so far in the early church, Peter just got done with his first sermon, 3,000 people are saved, professions of faith were made, baptisms occurred, and then we see the first occurrence of church membership. You're probably like, wait, where's, where's church membership in this passage? Well, if you read it, verse 41 says that 3,000 people were added on that day. And so you have to ask the question, well, added to what? Well, added to the church community here. Clearly, someone, I believe the leaders here, are keeping track. They're counting who's in and who's out based on professions of faith of repentance and baptisms, which are the two requisites for church membership. Someone was identifying who is a follower of Jesus, who is a card-carrying Christian who can represent Jesus to the world. Now, this isn't a sermon on church membership, so we can all relax for a moment, but I do wanna say that in order for us to experience this idea of biblical and gospel-shaped community, church membership is really important. This official way of saying, look, I'm committed to you even when it gets difficult. Like, I'm not gonna leave when it gets hard. I'm not gonna go church shop for uh, anything that, that meets my needs is an important aspect of what community is all about. And as we look at our verses here, verses 42 through 47, there is a particular kind of culture that can be identified within the early church. There's a certain kind of shape, a, a gospel shape based on how they live out the gospel in their relationships to one another that I wanna look at this morning. In fact, here's our big idea today that I wanna um, unpack. It's that gospel-shaped community results in gospel multiplication, okay? So community isn't just the byproduct of the gospel being multiplied, but gospel-shaped community can actually lead to the gospel being multiplied in your life and in the community uh, around you. And so this morning, I wanna look at four marks of a gospel-shaped community that the early church demonstrates in these verses. Four marks of a gospel-shaped community. Here is number one. <clears throat> they were committed to the essentials, committed to the essentials. Verse 42 says that they were devoted or they were committed to four ongoing activities. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, of course, the believers did more than just these four activities, but Luke wants us to know what were the core essentials? Like what were the, the things that the early church really prioritized as they lived life together? And so I wanna unpack each of these four briefly and then connect it to community. Let's look at number one, the apostles' teaching. Apostles' teaching here. Now as part of the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, before he ascended into heaven, he didn't just tell his apostles to make disciples, but he also commanded them to teach them everything that I have commanded you. And that is exactly what the apostles did. At the apostles' teaching, as you trace each of these sermons and each of these teachings throughout Acts, were centered upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Chapter four, verse 33 says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
Even chapter five, verse 28, the apostles were arrested and they were put before the Sadducees' council. And I kind of chuckled at this when I looked at the accusation made against them in verse 28 was that we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, referring to Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Okay, that's what they had against the early apostles. They were teaching about Jesus because it was a core essential. Number two, the second core essential that the early church was committed to was fellowship, fellowship. Now, this Greek word, many of you probably know it or heard this before, is koinonia. And koinonia carries the idea of sharing things in common. It's, it has the idea of like communing with one another. In fact, it was often used to, to kind of describe the, the marital relationship between two spouses, that there is this mutual commitment and mutual connection that they have with one another. And we're gonna unpack this a little bit further uh, later in the sermon, but Luke is going to be confronting this idea that church is just the place that you receive teaching and an experience from God and not the place that you share your life with other people. Okay, we're gonna get to that more in a moment. But koinonia was one of the core essentials because that's what it means to be in community with one another, that you're in relationship with each other, for each other, and for the sake of the gospel. Now, the third essential is the breaking of bread. So the apostles' teaching, we've got fellowship and now the breaking of bread. Now, I wish that I could just interpret this as just sharing meals together, that that's what the early church was committed to. And yet there's another view out there that takes this phrase to mean that it, it was referring to communion. The breaking of bread is symbolic of Jesus's body that was broken for us. That's what we talk about in communion. And then most views hold basically both, that this was uh, both a large meal that the early church gathered together and experienced. And during this large meal, communion would have been experienced and they would have partook of that activity. Now, the fourth essential was prayer. It's another core essential they were committed to. And look, we looked at this a couple weeks ago as part of kind of an ingredient for a gospel movement, but the early church constantly demonstrated their dependency upon God in prayer. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but what we pray about are the things that we trust God to handle. And the things that we don't pray about are the things that we trust ourselves to handle. And so for the early church, they were always committed to praying and seeking the Lord's face because they recognized that unless they pray, that they were wasting their time. And like Tim shared, we've got an opportunity to demonstrate this together as a church family tonight at five o'clock at our prayer worship night at Prayer Review Christian Church. I strongly encourage you to come and participate. Well, these are the four essentials that Luke records. And I just wanna note that that these were core essentials for the early church. That if you read the New Testament and you see the church continuing to mature, there are other core essentials that were added to what the church was actually committed to and what they considered to be core essentials. And we practice a lot of those here at College Park Fishers. But biblical community is experienced with at least these four core essentials. And I say that, but at the same time, I wanna remind us that the early church was a movement gathered around a mission, okay? It's important to always put before us as we travel through the book of Acts, that the mission 
that Jesus gave came first. Chapter one, verse eight. It wanted them to be their, his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That came first, and then the birth of the church came here in Acts chapter two. I've heard it put this way, that God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. Okay? Now, the reason why that's important is because I believe the early church didn't view these core essentials as ends in themselves. But I think that they viewed these core essentials and the things that they did together as a means by which they accomplished the mission that Jesus gave them. They always had the mission before them. And so whatever can help them accomplish the mission, that's what they were committed to. Look, I think that's a really helpful and healthy perspective to have on the things that go on even in our church, whether they're core essentials or different ministries or programs, they're not destinations. They're not ends in themselves, but they are means by which we participate in the mission that Jesus has given us. Back in August, we um, unveiled a new strategy for our church talked about how do we accomplish the mission? Well, we've got these three on-ramps, if you will, belong, grow, and multiply. So we want you to belong here, we want you to grow here so the gospel can be multiplied deep in your life and wide throughout the world. And it's, it's helpful to have that so we know where to put different ministries and programs and priorities for our church. And yeah, I just wanna say that those are not ends in themselves. Like that small group that you're in, that ministry team that you serve on, that Bible study that you're in, that, that's not a cul-de-sac, but that's a, a launching mechanism for you to be deployed out and into the world to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. That we wanna be that aircraft carrier type of a church, not a cruise ship where everything happens on Sunday morning for our comfort, but we wanna live out on mission. The reason why I think that's important is because community tends to be one of those things that is almost idolized in a church. Like if I can just feel connected, or if I can just be in community, then, then that's where I want to be. It's, it's almost like this end in itself when community is just a vehicle by which the gospel is multiplied. See, Jesus didn't say in chapter one, verse eight, and you shall live in community in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. No, no, he said, you shall be my witnesses. And so community and the core essentials and the things that we do in the life of our church are just vehicles or a means by which we accomplish that mission. Okay, so I'm trying to frame just a proper perspective on community. It's helpful, but it's not the end all that we should be running after. So that's the first mark. The second mark of a gospel-shaped community is they were filled with awe. They were filled with awe. Verse 43, Luke tells us, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What, what an observation by Luke here. Awe came upon every soul. This word awe can be translated as fear, kind of like this, uh, this, health, this healthy trembling came upon every soul. It's the type of emotion that might cause you to take careful, respectful, and even nervous notice of what's happening around you. It's the sense that like you're a part of something that's bigger and beyond you, and it causes this healthy fear to come inside of your heart. Can you remember the last time that you felt that in your life? 
Remember the last time that you were maybe a part of something bigger than just you and this all kind of came flooding in your heart? Maybe it was the first time you saw the Grand Canyon or maybe you, when you, you know, had the birth of your first child or a grandchild. Maybe it was experiencing an incredible concert or sporting event. I know for me in my life, when I went to Niagara Falls for the first time, like I was just, wow, just completely taken aback at the majestic beauty and the largeness of it all. I think that's what Luke is trying to describe here. But the reason for this all for the early church was, was because God, the living God, was at work in tangible, life-changing ways. Like that's, that's why this healthy fear came upon them because this huge, massive, holy, glorious God was personally at work in a tangible way, changing lives, and they started to expect it. They started to anticipate it. They started to pray for it to happen on a regular basis. I think we live in a time in which experiencing awe is becoming more and more difficult. Like we live in an age where it's the age of the internet and YouTube and iPhones and everything's at our fingertips. And so if we wanna see something or experience something, all we have to do is just look, up, look it up on the internet. And so this idea of astonishment and wonder and amazement, they're not, they're not common experiences for us. It's really hard for awe to kind of press into our hearts. And I would say many of us maybe can't remember the last time we were in awe, especially as it relates to God being at work in our lives. And yet awe was a common experience of the early church. This was kind of like a a core value, if you will. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. In Acts chapter five, verse five and 11, it uses this word fear or awe. And it had to do with the reaction to Ananias and Sapphira. It resulted in awe or fear that came upon them all. And then chapter 19, verse 17, this is after the, the sons of Sceva failed to imitate Paul, and kind of a crazy story, but that, that demon came and said, hey, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And so the, the demon through another man actually beat up all of these different sons. And then verse 17 says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear, or awe, came upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And then in chapter nine, verse 31, a beautiful verse, this is after Paul's conversion says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear or the awe of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it's multiplied. It could be a sermon in and of itself of the connection between awe and the church actually multiplying, but look, this was a a common experience of those in the early church. This joyful, trembling sense of awe where you're not flippant with this God. Like God is not just an idea. God is not tame. God is not distant. He's not silent. And for those in the early church, the God uh, that they worshiped and the God that they followed was this stunning, awesome, shocking present reality in their lives that was tangibly at work. And what happened is they they started to anticipate that kind of work. They lived in their community, wanting God to interrupt their lives and to be at work. And look, I think this is a key component of what a gospel-shaped community actually is. 
that in your small group and as we gather on Sundays, this, this type of awe where we gather together and we just can't get over the fact that God saved us. Like, I think that's how all is being produced. Like, God took us who were his enemies, who were objects of his wrath, and he saved us through the blood of Jesus, and so now we're adopted into his family, and we get to do life with other people who, man, like, we really wouldn't talk to unless the gospel was true. And as we gather together, we have just this this awe that fills our hearts where we just can't get over that reality that like God saved you. Look, you were on a completely different trajectory until God interrupted your life. The road that you were on, you were headed for eternal destruction. And yet God in his grace and in his kindness intervened in your life. He wooed you to himself, gave you the gift of faith to believe in Jesus. And now he, he accepts you and he loves you and he showers grace and mercy upon you and he gives you the gift of community. Man, have, have we taken that for granted? Like when you gather as a small group and we gather on Sundays, is that just like, like flooding your heart of like, man, we get to do this today. I get to share life with people. Like that type of just being overcome of like, man, I'm a son or I'm a a daughter of the king of kings. This is something that that the early churches could not get over that was actually shaping the kind of community that they were in. It impacted their words and their actions. And man, I want more of that in my life. Like I want more of that in our church. Like I want that sense of anticipation that, this big God is going to be tangibly at work and that he saves people and he matures people. So they were filled with this awe. Number three, a third mark of a gospel-shaped community is that they lived life together. They lived life together. They not only were committed to the core essentials, they not only had this countercultural awe, but they actually enjoyed being together. Like verse 44 tells us that all who believed were together and they had all things in common. I think Luke is uh, trying to paint a picture for us of a community of believers who, who shared their time and shared their lives with one another. In fact, Luke uses the word all or every in five different occurrences to refer to people or belongings. He's trying to emphasize, man, they were, they were together and they had this bond because they lived life together. I think Luke is confronting for us this lone ranger Christian mentality that if you think that you can just kind of be anonymous as a Christian, no one can know kind of where you are spiritually. Luke, Luke's gonna confront that head on here. In fact, let me, let me unpack that a little bit more. Let me give us maybe three aspects of what it means to live life together, okay? Because you probably heard that phrase like live life together. It's almost like a cliche, but let me, let me show you what the early church actually did in this passage, okay? Three aspects Number one is they, they gave up their time to each other. Verse, verse 46 shows us, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the early church, they worshiped together corporately in the temple, and they also gathered maybe in smaller groups in their homes throughout the week, 
Okay, so look, they, they spent a lot of time together. Like they, they loved being together. And just to state something maybe obvious for us, it's, it's impossible to live out and live in community when, when you're not investing the, re, the uh, required time that it takes to actually build relationships of regularly attending Sunday morning, of being part of a smaller group throughout the week in order for people to know you, in order for you to build those relationships. And that's what we see here in the early church. Now, the second thing that we see is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Now, when I say that word, I'm sure half the men in this room are probably like, had just like an allergic reaction to this idea because men tend to maybe give off the impression that we're strong, that we don't have weaknesses, that like vulnerability is for the weak. And yet vulnerability is a really important aspect of what a gospel-shaped community is all about. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. The early church here, as you can see in our passage, not only had needs that were being met, but they also had needs that were being expressed. Now, one of the striking aspects of this passage is the level of sacrifice and compassion that they had towards one another. That they were selling their property, they were selling their assets in order to meet real needs. But let me point out the fact that if a need is being met, that need needs to be expressed. And in order for that need to be expressed, there has to be a level of vulnerability. There has to be this sense of, of, of honesty and transparency of, man, this is where I'm at and, and this is what my need actually is. And so to actually articulate that and like confess that and share that with others demands a level of vulnerability that you see here in the early church. And in order for vulnerability to take place, it, there must be a safe place, right? It must be a, a, an inviting atmosphere where you can be vulnerable. That there must be a culture within that community that says, look, we wanna pursue godliness, we wanna pursue looking and loving like Jesus more and more, but we're secure enough in Jesus to admit the fact that we're all in process. Like no one, no one has arrived spiritually here. Like the Lord is chipping away at different aspects of, of the sin that's in our life. He's conforming us to the image of Jesus and allowing that belief to permeate and to impact the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we encounter God on Sundays, the way that we interact at small group should shape the way that we experience vulnerability. Like you've heard this saying before, and I'll apply it to the early church, but in this passage, you see a group of people where it was okay not to be okay. Like it was okay to, to share things, to confess things, and yet they loved each other so much that they didn't leave each other there. Right, Like a need was being confessed and they met that and they walked alongside one another. And so I, I want us to be appropriate with our vulnerability and our brokenness and not to allow transparency and vulnerability to be the end goal, right? It's not just, okay, I just want to be vulnerable and to share something and then I'm good. Like, don't speak into that. Don't follow up with me. Like, don't, don't get into my stuff, right? That's not, that's not biblical vulnerability. Biblical vulnerability is sharing something and then inv you're inviting those people to speak into your life in a loving way because the goal is not vulnerability. The goal is looking more and more like Jesus. 
And so within vulnerability, I, want just, I just wanna help us to avoid two dangers uh, within, within this aspect. The first danger is, is just kind of faking it. Like it's this idea of, of not being vulnerable, of kind of putting on the mask and trying to pretend to be someone that you're not spiritually. Like that's one danger to avoid. Like I'm okay, life is fine. And, and you might go through seasons where life is fine, but look, we have a real enemy and life is hard. And so if your consistent answer is, yeah, life's fine, like season after season, like it just makes people curious. Like, are you being really honest right now? Are you being transparent with, with what you're going through in your relationship with the Lord? So that's, that's one danger. The other danger is when someone is vulnerable and shares to, to not be judgmental or preachy. Right, this is, this is hard to do because we like to fix things. We like to fix people. And so when someone shares something, it's like, okay, man, let's, let's rally the troops, let's fix this, let's start maybe preaching at them. And yet we need to exercise kind of this emotional and social intelligence. Like we need to understand what the right tone is, what the right timing is. We're building bridges of grace that can hold the weight of truth. And sometimes when someone shares something, it's just good just to listen and not say anything right, and wait for the appropriate time to follow up and come alongside them. Like it's impossible to articulate every scenario. So look, I'm gonna do this thing where small group leaders get really nervous. But small group leaders, I just wanna challenge you to maybe have this conversation in your, with your small group. I want you to maybe consider the question of what would it look like for us as a small group to take the next step in in experiencing a deeper level of vulnerability with one another. Like, what does it look like to share things that are really going on? And what are the expectations of following up with that? Like, what's, what's most helpful for you, Sally, when you share something? Like, do you wanna be fixed in the moment or do you want us to kind of be quiet and maybe wait a few days? Or hey, Bob, like, what do you, what do you need? Just having that conversation might be, might be helpful within your own small group. And I do just wanna say that if you're not in a small group, and, and even if you are in a small group, like small group is not the end goal of community. Like small groups, they're just a vehicle to experiencing community. So if you're in a small group, it's not, okay, I check the box of community. But small group is that environment, that safe environment where you can actually experience the gospel being multiplied in your life. So it's vulnerability. Last, last aspect here related to living life together is unity is unity. This is all over the place, all over the book of Acts, but the early church, they had all things in common. They experienced koinonia. They were all in for the same mission, okay? Again, this is really important for experiencing a gospel-shaped community. They weren't disagreeing on, hey, do you think Jesus really meant that we need to be witnesses in Samaria? Like, maybe that was optional. Like, let's just stick here in Jerusalem. Like they weren't having those kinds of discussions. They were all in for the same mission. They weren't saying, yeah, I, I don't think prayer should be a core essential. Like let's just pray by ourselves. Like we shouldn't gather together and pray. No, no, they were, they were committed and unified for what the church should be all about. Look, one of the things that, that I've taken from the book of Acts is that they didn't consider church to be a place that they attended, but they considered church to be more of who they were who they are. And I think that's a good challenge for us that church is not like an event to go to or a place to go to, but we are the church. 
Like we, we live out these things as we do life with one another, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week, we live life together. Finally, the fourth mark of a gospel-shaped community is open-handed generosity. Open-handed generosity. So, so far, we've seen three marks. We've seen the fact that they were committed to the essentials. They were filled with awe. They lived life together. And now they had this open-handed generosity. We've already seen the fact that they sold their possessions and assets often and gave to those in need. But notice verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. A generosity was a mark of this community that created a contagious desire to want to be a part of it. Like generosity was kind of like the glue. It was kind of like the, the thing that people were like, man, that is, that is countercultural. Like that is so different. And it was kind of attracting them to be a part of it. It's this voluntary, willing response to meet a need. Like I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, just to be honest with you, my first reaction when I look at the generosity here is to say, that's not for us. Like that's not prescriptive what's going on here. Like, and I, I think that because it's like, yeah, we're not socialists. Like, you know, we believe in private property and all those things. Like, but I just wanna challenge our thinking for a moment, not to throw out the principle with the expression of the principle, okay? The, the timeless principle here, what is prescriptive for all churches and all believers is generosity, okay? That's, that's what's being emphasized here. The way that that is expressed might be seen differently depending on the culture and the time period. Okay, so don't just completely throw it away. Let's look at this idea of open-handed generosity. Generosity was one of the things that Luke, the author of Acts and the gospel of Luke, loved to talk about. Luke believed that Christians should use their possessions and their resources for the needs of others, not just for their own comforts. Luke is the only one that mentions the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. He's the only one that tells the parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns in Luke 12. He told the story of God's great banquet that people would, wouldn't come to because they had fields and cattle to attend to. Luke tells the story of the dishonest manager in Luke 16. Tells of the rich man in Lazarus also in Luke 16. Look, more than more than any other New Testament author, Luke stresses the danger of letting our life consist in the things that we possess, as if to say, this is Luke, as if Luke is trying to say that holding on to your money, possessions, and stuff close-fisted might result in you losing your own soul. The early church was, this is just stunning, to like read this and to think about how they viewed their belongings. The early church was absolutely convinced that everything they had, their entire life, belonged to God, right? It wasn't theirs. Like, God was loaning it to them. In fact, I think that there are two main views of how we view our stuff, our resources, our time, and our money. And depending on which view you have, it says a lot maybe about your own maturity. The first view, the one I'm not recommending, is the view that you basically believe that your life belongs to you. And maybe you don't verbalize this or say this out loud, but 
everything that you have is because you earned it. Like you worked for it, you had the discipline, you had the work ethic. All the money, all your possessions, like that is yours. And yet you think to yourself, I I wanna be a good Christian, and so I wanna give some of it back to God because I I wanna be a faithful Christian. And so what of mine do I need to give back to God? It's kind of like a God tax. Like you think about, okay, what piece of this do I need to give back to God? Doing taxes right now, so that came to mind. That's, that's the first view. I think it's an unhealthy and unbiblical view to, to view our stuff and our money in that way. The second view and the view that the early church held was that everything belongs to God. Everything that I have is on loan from God to me and I'm called to be a faithful steward in order to use that to advance his mission. That I don't own one cent of the money that God has given me. Every breath that I breathe is from God Almighty. And and so this view of the early church, I think, happens when you understand the power of the gospel as it relates to the things that we have in our life. The gospel is the only way that we can actually have that second view as it relates to the stuff that's in our lives. And the reason for that is because generosity is really the backside of the gospel, if you think about it. Like if the front side is God giving generously his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us and our sins, then the backside of the gospel or the response to the gospel is for us to be generous in every area of our life. And so the more that we believe and the more that we treasure the gospel, the more generous a people we will be. Look, one of the effects of the gospel, and I would say maybe one of the most uncomfortable things that the gospel does in our lives is the gospel is really the only thing that's powerful enough to free our fingers and loosen our grip on our money and our time and our resources. That's what the gospel does. Generosity is like one of the most evident, one of the most best evidences that you really are a Christian and a follower of Jesus that the gospel kind of takes our white knuckle grip and loosens it so that we live open-handedly with everything in our lives. We say, God, this is all yours already. I'm not gonna hold my money tightly. I'm not gonna hold my time tightly. I'm gonna hold it loosely and allow who you are to determine how it is that I need to use the things that you have given me. But generosity grows in our hearts when we see and we savor the immense generosity that God has demonstrated in the gospel. Looking to the gospel helps us to look up and to see God and to let go of the things in our lives. And I think that this generous love, this grace of God actually fills our hearts with the right motive to give, whether it's our time, our gifts, our money, So we're not giving out of guilt, we're giving out of the grace of the gospel by connecting it to that arena of our life. Man, what what a mark of a a community to be a community known for open-handed generosity. Well, as we close today, I wanna maybe connect this idea of community to gospel multiplication. That it's one thing to maybe think about how do we live out community together And yet I also wanna highlight the fact that being part of a gospel-shaped community actually impacts the gospel being multiplied. Look at verse 47 for a moment. 
The last sentence there says that, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Is it amazing? Like when you have this gospel shaped community, the result is that God adds to that church, to that community, that it's God's responsibility to grow the church when and how, uh, how, how many people to grow it to. And yet we are called just to be faithful and to pursue a gospel shaped community. So this morning, just want to encourage you to think about the role of community that it has in your life. And maybe you're here today and, and you have viewed community as just an option to participate in. Maybe you're here and just kind of like a lone ranger. You might come on Sundays, but I'm not gonna share my life with others. Maybe you're here today and, and you're in community and maybe this is challenging you to go deeper in the community group that you find yourself in. So this morning, we... We wanna share a, a testimony video with you, just a family who's in a small group who has experienced the benefits of community. And there are so many amazing stories that, that takes place in, in our different small groups. This is just one that, that hopefully, for those of you who aren't in a small group, that you might be like wooed into small group this morning. And maybe if you're in a small group, that this might further challenge uh, what kind of community that you're actually in. So this is John and Suzanne Collins. Hi, we're the Collins family. I'm John. I'm Suzanne. So in 2016, uh, in October 2016, uh, we lost our uh, sweet, beautiful two-year-old girl, Lily, uh, to a sudden illness. Uh, and of course, as a parent, it's probably one of the most devastating and horrific things that you can go through. When I think about our small group, and just kind of what they mean to us is, um, you know, when we left the hospital um, and when we got home to our, to our house, um, our pantry and our fridge um, was full. Um, and that was people from our small group just trying to uplift us and support us in that way. And that's kind of always been something that we've seen throughout our small group. So, I mean... Everybody in our small group, you know, has gone through different seasons and struggles. And one of the things that we've seen just being so amazing is just how we are all always there to support each other, whether it's standing in a waiting room into late hours or text messages of encouragement or, you know, different ways to just show the love that we have for each other. We were talking earlier just about what Pastor Chris shared, something along the lines of God wants to use your brokenness um, to draw you into community with others. Um, and that's the case. You know, being part of that people community is, is important. And I mean, you know, it's, you know, being able to have the accountability um, just of other people there. You know, it's kind of one of those things where you, you know you're going to talk about the sermon so it's just kind of that extra, like, you know, oh, well, I'm, we're going to be talking about this later. Um, but it's also, you know... <laughs> better pay attention. Better pay attention. Yeah, I'm going to take really good notes. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like I said earlier, like, you know, having this, like, second family. Like, having these people that, you know, like, you can really form relationships and, you know, bond with and, you know, just kind of share life with. Because, I mean, I think that that's, like, a big part of the biblical community concept is just 
having a group of people that you can really do life with and your kids can grow up together and that you can kind of share in some of those life experiences. Small group is that place where you're being equipped to then turn around and um, work on that sphere of influence that you have. You know, that small group is that place where we're able to pray, where we're able to study, where we're able to trade ideas, to challenge each other, so that when we return to work or when we return to home with our kids or um, when we go to Panera or whatever, you know, we've studied, we've prayed, we've encouraged, and we've got the tools now um, to then have that influence elsewhere. We wanted to share that with you today and um, really partly because some of the vision behind being part of a small group is that you've got kind of a, a community group for support and encouragement when life gets really hard, when you experience maybe a tragedy. One of my mentors always said that you're either in a storm or a storm is coming in life. And so small groups is kind of that safe place for you to have that type of support. But the other part of the vision of a small group is to be around a group of believers to rehearse the gospel together and to figure out how do I apply the gospel to the different arenas of my life? Like how do I apply the gospel to my workplace, to parenting, to singleness, to you know, re repenting of sin and not losing my cool with my kids? Like how does that actually work? It's a safe place to confess sin and to get accountability and we, really believe in small groups here. And if you're not in a small group and you'd like to take that next step and maybe exploring different small groups, uh, Dustin is gonna be in the back of, of the sanctuary. He'd love to um, explain more about what small groups are like and maybe offer different times for you to come check it out. Also wanna say that uh, small groups aren't perfect. And so I've been trying hard not to overpromise and underdeliver. They're not. I mean, we're a bunch of messy sinners getting together on a consistent basis, you know? So things happen, and yet there is a level of grace of trying to grow in some of these marks of a gospel-shaped community that we really, really believe in. Because the alternative is scary. The alternative of not being in a group, not being known, just being anonymous, man, you're, you're on a path of, of destruction in your life. So just wanna encourage you, if you're here and maybe you don't feel connected to our church, you know, maybe you've come here first time, second time. Maybe you've, you've been here for a couple of years and you're like, I, I like Sunday mornings, but I still don't really feel connected. Look, we, we have a pathway for you to take a step and to be part of a small group or a Bible study or women's ministry, become a member of our church, whatever it might be for you so that you can feel connected and actually experience biblical community. So more or less, the ball's in your court. If you don't feel connected, we... We want this to be a safe place for community to be experienced and we invite you into this place.